welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. So today we're going to be talking about the experiments conducted on enslaved women, Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, and other unnamed women by J. Marion Sims, a physician in Antebellum America. I want to emphasize that I said enslaved women rather than slave women because it was brought to our attention that in critical discourse, using enslaved to describe individuals in systems of slavery affirms that slavery was enforced upon that person rather than being an inherent condition that they exist in. We didn't know about this until after recording our episode, but we are always in the process of learning and we appreciate Dr. Lewis for pointing this out to us. We wanted to apologize for that and just clarify that for you so that we can all move forward together and be on the same page. So today I want to start in a way that we don't usually, but in order to do this topic justice, we need, I think, the empathy and reality that often come best from primary text. It had to come away, and there was nothing to do but to pull it away by main force. Lucy's agony was extreme. I thought she was going to die. But she recovered with great rapidity, and in the course of a week or ten days, was as well as ever. After she recovered entirely from the events of this unfortunate experiment, I put her on the table to examine the result. The operation was performed in December 1845. It inaugurated a series of experiments that were continued for a long time. So that came from J. Marion Sims' private journals that he kept and ultimately published as a book. And that passage was about Lucy, one of the enslaved women that we are going to be talking about today, along with Anarka, Betsy, and seven other unnamed women who are the subjects of J. Marion Sims' human experiments. But before we get into everything, today we are going to be talking about topics of race and racism against Black Americans, particularly Black women, and we want to start by acknowledging that we are not Black. We will never be able to truly understand what Black individuals are facing in the United States, but to our Black listeners, friends, and fellow Americans, we stand with you and will walk beside you even though we cannot walk in your shoes. At the time of recording, millions of people have taken to social media and to the streets in protest, demanding action, donating money, and galvanizing each other to inform and educate themselves about how to be actively anti-racist. Even though this episode won't be posted for another month, we hope that whenever you're listening to this, that the momentum has persisted, and that this episode can be a reminder to continue to do and be more. As a podcast centered around social justice and history, we felt very strongly about contributing to discussions of race within our spheres of feminism. A lot of discourse circulating has been about educating ourselves and becoming more informed about Black history that is so painfully unacknowledged. Staying silent only causes more harm, so today's episode is our way of opening up one of our conversations about race and gender to you. We're excited to engage with you about this topic. Also, during our Feminist Corner discussion, we will be joined by Dr. Diana Lewis, a professor of women's studies and American culture at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She will be talking with us about intersectionality, 
how it relates to the episode, and how we can use it to navigate our daily lives. So be sure to stick around for that. And I guess with that, I wanted to ask you, Shar, as always, what do you already know about the slave women that Sims experimented on? Maybe you know why they were the subjects of his experiments or even what field of medicine he was working in? Anything? Yeah. So from what I know, he is known as the father of gynecology, mm-hmm. uh, which I learned from you already. <laughs> um <laughs> I know I, I'm reading a book right now about women in medicine and they mentioned that he discovered something, some like cure to something or like how mm-hmm. something worked. I don't remember what it was at this moment. Um, and yes, and that he experimented on slave women. And yeah, my mom actually tagged me in a Facebook post about him today and mm-hmm. I refused to read it in the moment because I knew that we were recording this tonight. I didn't want to have any spoilers. I love that. I'm glad that she is keeping you woke. So yes, you're right. J. Marion Sims, his title to some these days is the father of modern gynecology. And this man is just a huge racist. Oh man. And for four years, he conducted experiments on black enslaved women um, because he was searching for a way to repair vesicovaginal fistulas. That's the mm, thing. Okay. So let's dive right in. I'm going to explain all of that. So for historical context, the year is 1845, and we are in Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. Deep, deep south. Wow, it is deep, deep south. south. <laughs> Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy were all Black slave women who were owned by friends or acquaintances of Sims. So Betsy was 17 or 18 years old at the time. She had been married the previous year, and she had a baby, and then for a month was unable to keep urine from leaking out of her body. No good. Anarka was 17, And she also had a baby and she had been in labor for three days. And that's important to remember. So remember that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And Anarka actually lost control of both her bladder and her rectum. And so she was leaking a lot of different fluids and she was in incredible pain. And then Lucy, you heard about her a little bit in our description um, Mm -hmm. from the primary text that I read at the beginning but she was about 18, similar thing. She had a baby, gave birth. And for two months after, until she went to see Sims, like to get treated, quote unquote treated, she was unable to keep urine in her body. So all of these three women had what are called vesicovaginal fistulas, which are basically tears between the vagina and the bladder or the vagina and rectum, usually the vagina and bladder that result in a leakage of bodily fluids and constant pain. Oh, God. Yeah. And actually, for those of you who like etymology, vesicovaginal fistulas basically speak for themselves as to what they are, because vesico means bladder, and then vaginal, of course, refers to the vagina, and a fistula is a tear. And so it's a tear between the vagina and the bladder. Makes sense. And yeah. According to a review paper published in The Lancet, 
An estimated 3 million women have unrepaired vaginal fistulas today, and most of these occur in developing countries, but they come with a lot of pain and a lot of stigma still in these countries. However, these fistulas were very common, very, very common in the 19th century because of childbirth, especially in cases of longer labor, because the tears that were being caused were a result of tissue damage. So this all will come back. It all makes sense. But back to Sims, back to these women. From 1845 to 1849, Sims experimented on these three women and others, seven others who are unnamed. But to give you an idea of the scope and just amount of experimenting he was doing, he performed surgery on Anarka 30 times over the course of four years. Yeah. Have you ever had a surgery? I have my wisdom teeth removed. (laughs) I, okay. I mean, same, I guess that counts as a surgery, but I literally cannot imagine. I cannot imagine having surgery. I have never even had one done. So having one, having a surgery. 30 times. And I mean, the outcomes of his aggressive experimentation were successful to him because he ultimately was able to create a surgery to repair vesicovaginal fistulas. And he also invented a tool that modern gynecologists still use. Can you guess what it is? Do you know? The only gynecology tool I know is the, is like the thing that they, you shove in and like open up the vagina with. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. It's, that's called a speculum. Yep. That is what it's called. Yes. So he did invent the speculum and it was originally called the Sim speculum. Got rid of that name. Thank God. Yeah. But the first speculum was actually just the handle of a pewter spoon that he just like stuck inside and yeah. What? Evolved over time into the speculum that we know. But have you ever had a speculum like used on you? It's so uncomfortable. They're interesting devices. Yeah, it was, I mean, that's one of the outcomes of his experimentation was the creation of this device that we still use today and people don't even realize where it came from or the roots of it. Mm -hmm. So those are the roots. The negative roots of it. Very negative roots. Next time someone's using a speculum on you, you are going to think of this. All right, so here are some of the things that he had to do in order to reach his success because we just talked about how he was successful, but at what cost? So he essentially rented these slaves because he told their owners that as long as they paid for the tax on the slaves and paid for the slaves clothing, that he would take ownership of them until their treatment was complete. And so he was effectively renting them. And in his autobiography, well, he had these journals and the like his whole journal is published. And so I read some snippets of it. Originally, when I learned about this experiment or these experiments, it was in a class that I took about history of human experimentation. Right. So I have access to a lot of these journal documents and I was reading through them again for my research. And he talks about how there were many advantages to being able to work on these women that were basically his property. And he said, oh God. quote, there was never a time I could not at any day have had a subject for an operation. Oh my God, that's terrible. I know. Wait, so he rented them like, they were obviously very sick post-pregnancy, not being able to control their bladder 
or their rectum. So did he rent them, like going to his friends being like, yo, your slave isn't usable right now or something? Like, can I rent them? Like, that's so terrible. It was more like that these women weren't an asset to the slave owners anymore because they were okay yeah in such pain mm-hmm. and in this condition that that's why he was called in to examine them and then he basically and offered like, like oh let me like yeah. take care of them like I'll take them under my wing basically that and that's kind of what you're saying that he effectively was like these women are no longer of use to you so I can quote unquote repair them and give them back god that's terribly a business transaction yep not like they're humans or anything and like i mentioned before he did 30 surgeries on anarka and for betsy and i will just say this is a little bit graphic so if you don't want to hear this then skip forward a couple like 15 second <laughs> increments yeah but for betsy during his experimentation he even tested out, he was trying to get the leakage of the urine to stop so that he could work on doing the repairs. And so he tested out leaving a sponge inside of her to soak up the urine That's in so between bad. procedures. Then I know. Stuck. And also it literally caused major infection. Oh my God. It's like when you leave a tampon in for too long and you go into toxic shock syndrome. And then die. Same. Yes, exactly. He, she almost died. She actually almost died from this. Wow. And he was having similar issues, not with this, like the sponge was a problem, but he was also having issues because he was using unsterilized silk thread for the sutures. And of course, so they like, infected? You can't, yeah, they were getting infected from the silk thread that he was using. He eventually remedied this by switching to um, silver thread because silver has like natural antibacterial properties. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't discount the fact that he literally caused bacterial infections in all these other women before he came to this realization. Oh my God. But the worst part about all of this, the worst thing I think is that he didn't give these women anesthesia. I was wondering that. I was like, is he doing vivisections? Which vivisection is dissecting a human who is alive or anything that is yeah. alive. And I was not dissecting them, but like he's cutting them open and like doing procedures on them while they are fully awake. That's torture. That's actually torture. And he was. Um, Can you think of why he was doing this? Maybe to understand like the pain levels or something or to save money. That's a good guess. Yeah. It's just that he was a huge racist and he was terrible. (laughs) And he, like you were kind of saying, relating to pain, but not really. He just believed that Black folks experience less pain than white folks, which is a belief that still persists today. And we've talked about this. And it's just so beyond ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. Actually so awful. And wow. So he was like, their pain tolerance is way higher. So I'm just going to do this, you know, save money, not use anesthesia and just go ahead just do it. Yeah, basically. I mean, I'm not 100% sure about the money thing, just because when people argue in favor of Sims, they say that at the time, anesthesia wasn't widely used and widely available. But I feel like that's a very, very weak argument. Because down the line, when he did eventually do these surgeries on white women, he did use anesthesia. Oh, so that just shows how racist he is 
truly so racist and it really shows how ingrained this racism was like he truly believed that these women experienced less pain because they were black so instead of anesthesia what he did was he gave them morphine after their procedures were completed so the whole procedure was without anesthesia but after he gave them morphine for the pain but he didn't think about the fact that morphine is an opiate and I mean he did 30 surgeries on a narca like they become addicted probably yes yeah after they were addicted there is evidence in his journals of them being like constipated and things like that which are side effects of opiate addiction so he was clearly not thinking about those like long-lasting changes he just had this goal and he was using them and that was what he did. And so not only did he- Do you think that he attributed those symptoms that would come from opiate addiction to his surgeries and stuff? Do you think that he thought they were side effects to the procedures he was doing and just completely didn't even think about the addiction? That's possible. I do think that he didn't really see his surgeries as something that was harming them at all. He only saw himself in this benevolent way because something else that he mentions in his journals is that down the line when he starts doing the surgery in other women, when the surgery outcome turns out poorly, he wouldn't blame himself and blame the surgery going wrong. He would blame the midwife or the nurse or the whoever was delivering the baby saying that it was their fault and therefore his surgery didn't work. And that's why there was like a failure. Just pushing it off to other people. Yes, exactly. I doubt that he would give any second thought to the surgery and the outcomes of the surgeries or the side effects. Um, I don't think he was thinking about that at all. I think he was really just thinking about his goal and what he could get out of it. Okay. But I do have a little story relating to anesthesia and opiates that I kind of wanted to tell because it's a personal story that I thought was interesting. So during my research and reading about this, I was thinking about how when I was a doula, so in college, I was a birth doula. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's someone who supports pregnant moms during childbirth and labor, during the labor process, and then like also before and after labor. And I remember I had one mom who was terrified of needles. She had a huge needle phobia. Also, she had a very low pain tolerance. She knew this about herself and she was nervous because she wanted to have a natural birth, but she knows she can't handle pain and birth is very painful. Right. Labor is very painful, but she couldn't get an epidural, which is- needle. Right, because an epidural gives you painkiller directly into your spine and it completely numbs a certain part of your spine and down and you can't feel anything like you only feel pressure so you can't even feel your legs when you have an epidural it's like fully blocking all pain you lose half your body you you really do but instead she opted for another form of pain reduction and she asked for morphine because they do give pregnant women like small doses of morphine to help control the pain Mm -hmm. But as I'm sitting with this woman who is in labor all night long, basically every contraction that she had, she would feel all the pain of it because morphine doesn't make the pain go away like an epidural. It just dulls the pain. And then 
after the pain subsides, you like don't remember it. Oh, so she would experience all the pain, but she was so loopy. She wouldn't remember it after the contraction subsided and she would just fall asleep immediately and then wake up again, have like a full contraction that was super painful, squeeze my hand really tight and then let it go, fall asleep and wake up. And that happened all night long. And so thinking about these two ways of pain killing, like anesthesia versus opiates mm-hmm. and seeing them in real life just made me think about that doula client and and how her story relates to this story. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't realize that's how morphine work, especially like in childbirth. Yeah, it's interesting because you wouldn't think that they would let you take morphine mm-hmm. because during childbirth, you, everyone is very particular about what you put in your body and like what right. medication you get. But moving on. So some historians argue that Sims actually helped Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, and the other women he experimented on because oh, they argue that these women were in so much pain, it was actually a relief for them. And I was actually shocked by the number of peer-reviewed articles that argued this. And I feel like to make this argument means that you're not considering the circumstances that led these women to get fistulas in the first place Mm -hmm. because you're not understanding the history of it. So these women were basically only receiving quote-unquote care from this physician because their bodies were vessels for experimentation. Right. They were viewed as valuable but the very thing that made them valuable was what led them to get these fistulas in the first place. So let me explain, because that's a little confusing. Black women were actually first viewed as having very little value when the slave trade began. So do you have any ideas of why this might be the case? Or maybe because they weren't as strong as men in the beginning of slave trade, men were used for like work and for building yes. America, basically? Yes, exactly. So they were viewed as not being able to work as hard. They couldn't work in the fields, on the plantations. They were just not as strong. And that was why they were viewed as less valuable. So initially on the slave trade, more men were coming in across the Middle Passage than women. But once the white plantation owners realized that they could save money and stop buying new slaves by having their female slaves just procreate and like have a bunch of babies and have those babies be born into slavery and never set them free ever, then they would have way more value. And so that's where these- Right, then they had purpose. Exactly, that's, that became their essence. And so women would have babies from as soon as possible, like their teens, until they could not have babies anymore. In particular with young women, their bodies weren't grown, particularly their pelvises were not big enough to accommodate a large baby's head. And so as a result, it made it common for babies to get stuck in the birth canal and therefore resulted in longer labors. Oh, and longer labors lead fistulas. Mm-hmm. Exactly, longer labors like Anarka's three-day-long labor led her to have the largest fistula of those women that he was experimenting on because she was 
in so much pain and in labor for so long that all of that tissue just died. Wow. And so these people who are arguing that Sims was doing these women a favor it are not considering the larger picture of why they even need his services in the first place. Right. Yeah. So you can't even like dismiss it as, oh, they just needed help anyway. Well, it's like, well, yeah, right. you need to go back to the root of the problem to exactly. actually help them. So what of their legacies now, Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy? Um, well, many years down the line now, Sims is still viewed by some as this medical trailblazer. And for a long time, he had statues up in South Carolina and um, another one in Central Park in New York. However, in 2018, the statue was removed from Central Park, but it took several years of activists working to remove it. And let's not forget that 2018 was literally two years ago. Like, only two years ago was this statue removed. It shouldn't be something that we should be, like, really celebrating as like a hundred percent of a win right this dude was over a hundred years ago and people are yeah, still praising exactly. him without doing the research into yeah and central did. park like think about the foot traffic that goes through central park right and seeing them being like wow this great man like i don't know what the plaque said but i'm sure it says something about gynecology yeah i i think it did like oh it's great and that's the knowledge you have and you don't ever go seek it out any farther So there's these false ideas about his legacy. Well, now actually the statue wasn't like destroyed. It was moved actually to Brooklyn because I think he was buried there. But the plaque on it was actually replaced with one that educates the public about his controversial life and highlights the names of Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy who deserve that recognition far more. So with that, I've actually reached the official end of our history section. But Charlotte, like, what are your initial thoughts, questions? How do you feel? Let's unpack that a little bit. I was like mostly shocked by how extensive the experimentation was in terms of like how many surgeries and the lack of actual care towards these women. It seems like they, he was literally experimenting on them as if they were animal models, but even animal models today are given anesthesia or whatever and he was just treating them like they weren't actual humans like he would never have operated on white women in that way of right and he didn't yeah not giving them anesthesia and you know practically owning them and like you said using them whenever he wanted in terms experimenting on them he never gave them the respect of an actual person or an actual patient he wasn't actually treating them as a doctor he was like the mad scientist almost. I don't know. Doing this research was really heavy, but it was also, I learned so much about it and I'm excited to have our discussion with Dr. Lewis to unpack it some more. Right. I'm excited to see her knowledge on the topic and especially like how talking about black women and women in medicine, like how it all comes together into affecting history and today. Yeah, I agree. This week, for our Feminist Corner discussion, I want to start by introducing our guest. So Dr. Diana Lewis, as I mentioned before, is a professor of women's studies and American culture at the University of Michigan. 
She teaches several classes, including the one I took with her, and I can honestly say she was my favorite women's studies professor in undergrad. Her research revolves around topics of slavery, mental illness, black feminism, and more. And her book manuscript, titled Colored Insane, Slavery, Asylums, and Mental Illness in the 19th Century, explores the impact of major transformations in American psychology and African-American social conditions in that time. We are so happy to have her. So welcome, Dr. Lewis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, we are so excited. But before we unpack a little bit about what we learned about Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy, we first wanted to talk about intersectionality, its origins, and how it relates to these experiments. And so I want to quickly tell a little story that starts in a courtroom. It was a discrimination case, DeGraff and Reed versus General Motors, 1976. And five Black women are suing GM because they argue that GM is targeting Black female employees specifically, and this is how they did that. So they were using seniority-based layoffs, which basically means they were firing the last people that were hired. And so employees with the least number of years under their belt were the ones who were getting the boot. And the women's case argued that the company didn't hire any Black women until 1964, and so they were all considered newer hires and therefore were all laid off. And they were suing on the basis of discrimination of sex and race. And the court basically freaked out and they said that wasn't possible and that they couldn't sue on account of one or the other. And so in the end, the judge actually ruled against the women because he said that Black women couldn't be considered in their own category, even though their experience was truly singular. So this court case years later in 1989 was cited by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw along with two other cases and they helped her in her argument and in her definition of this term that she coined intersectionality. So I wanted to ask you Dr. Lewis if you could explain what intersectionality was at the time that Kimberly Crenshaw introduced the term and then how our understanding of it has changed over time, maybe how we use it more now. Many people think about intersectionality as the accumulation of identities. I'm a woman, I'm from Florida, I'm Black. But that's not quite what Kimberly Crenshaw was trying to convey 30 years ago. She was trying to draw attention to how discrimination, stereotypes, systems of power, and institutional structures came to bear on Black women's lives. These systems of power shaped their experiences, opportunities, outcomes, and sometimes created new burdens and vulnerabilities. Intersectionality can be used to explain or understand Black women's experiences in every sector of society, whether it's in their job, and education, with the police, and most importantly for this conversation, even with their experiences of health and encounters with medicine. Mm -hmm. The premise of intersectionality is that you can't understand Black women's oppression solely through an analysis of gender or solely through an analysis of race. 
In other words, black women's gender changes the way they experience racism. Mm -hmm. And their race Mm -hmm. changes the way they experience sexism. Got it. Wow, I've never thought about it like that. Because I know what intersectionality is, but you're right. I think the way that we understand it today is like this crossover or intersection of identities. But really, the way that Dr. Crenshaw wanted to talk about it was the way that discrimination based off of these different identities came and affected or affects like every aspect of our lives in different ways. Right. Right. I also didn't realize that it also talks about how like one type of your identity can affect how the other part of your identity like affects your life. So it's not just like this one sole thing. It's how all the different parts of yourself are playing a role in that discrimination or how you're viewed by society. Absolutely. There are these overlapping systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to take the emphasis off of identity and on systems because Mm -hmm. that's really how people's lives are affected. That really ties in well with my next question. So I wanted to ask both of you how you felt like intersectionality helps us better understand what Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, and these other enslaved women experienced during the four years that they were experimental subjects, but also how it could help us understand the way that they lived, like just in their lives as enslaved women. When I was thinking about how intersectionality affected these enslaved women, my first thought was, okay, how are they affected because they were, were women in the first place? And I was thinking about how the role of women was to bear children and to have these children and how the care um, associated with um, being pregnant and like all the OB care was having these negative effects on these women in terms of, you know, how long their labor was lasting and causing these fistulas. And then I started to think more about how they were Black women and how they were enslaved Black women and how this was causing an even larger discrimination in terms of them being childbearers because they weren't just bearing children because they wanted to grow a family, right? And have their own children. We talked a lot about how enslaved women were given this purpose, sadly, that they were going to have children for the white owners to have more enslaved people. And that is like an inhumane way of looking at childbirth and the importance of childbirth. So that just had a negative effect on them because they were having children, as we talked about, so young and not getting the care they needed. And especially having so many childbirths just has a huge toll on the body, even in today's society, if you have multiple children, like that can cause negative effects on your body. And this was over a hundred years ago. So I can't even imagine what it was like then. And then on top of all of that, just being black women in the discrimination that black people faced during that time. Um, we talked about how they didn't have anesthesia and how they weren't perceived as having higher pain levels, which is still an issue in healthcare today with, yeah, um, yeah, when black people go in and, you know, search for pain medication, they're less likely to get it. And it was the same as when Sims was experimenting on these women. And I think that had a huge role in what they went through during this experimentation. Yes, Charlotte, you have Mm -hmm. touched on some really important things that absolutely 
impacted the way that Black women experience normal um, health issues that white women also mm-hmm. experienced. White women were having children, Black women were having children, but even those experiences of childbirth changed when we talked about right. who the women were and their mm-hmm. status as slaves. So you're absolutely right. Black women's race changed the way they experienced mm-hmm. health concerns, but their gender also changed the way they experienced slavery. Um, a famous right. slave narrator, Harriet Jacobs, who's now famous, um, but she wrote an 1861 slave narrative called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And in it, she mm-hmm. has this really famous quote where she says, slavery is terrible for, for men, but it is far more terrible for women. Super mm-hmm. added to the burden common to all, they have wrongs and sufferings and mortifications peculiarly their own. And what she goes on to talk about in the narrative is that women were not only used as a source of labor in fields and in Mm -hmm. homes, um, etc., but they also faced particular sexualized violence and, and also were exploited for their reproductive abilities, right? So their experiences of slavery were different than men. And mm-hmm. the reproductive abilities that they had was a unique category. Um, and that is really what shaped Sims' experiences with them. Those are the things that were important for understanding why he was able to do what he was able to do, when he was able to do it, how much he was able to do it, the conditions under which he was able to do it. Yeah. Wow. So all of that. Dr. Lewis kind of coming together and thinking about how intersectionality is, how using intersectionality is really one of the key ways we can understand or even try to understand what these women were going through. I'm wondering, in your opinion, what we don't see when we think of enslaved women and their experiences. I will say um, that Black women's bodies were considered disposable outside of the use for their slave masters. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like you all talked about earlier, conceptions and medicine about Black women's higher pain tolerance opened them up to brutal experimentation without anesthesia. And that just wouldn't happen with white women, particularly white women with privilege. Right. Yeah. Like I think we even mentioned that when he did go on to do these vesicovaginal official repairs on white women, then he suddenly started using anesthesia. Some papers I read were arguing that anesthesia wasn't very common at the time. And so he wasn't using it on these women. And down the line, when the white women were the ones getting the repairs, then they were the ones who got the anesthesia. And that just doesn't sit right with me. That doesn't make sense. Like, I don't know how you could argue that really, but also I don't know. I don't know the history, so maybe it's true. I don't know. From what I understand, even when it was available, um, Sims did not use it. But I think what's most important to understand, the real key difference is, one, the ideas about pain, for example, were like whether or not he could use it, he he wouldn't use it because he Mm -hmm. believed that Black women were had higher pain tolerances. So like that was more important for understanding 
whether or not he used it, even if it were available. You, does that make sense? Yeah. He, th- so, yeah. like that idea was that idea, that was, idea was so ingrained in him. Yeah. That he was like, I don't even need to look for it. Yeah, that, that wasn't even a part right. of his thought process. That was just not in the in his imagination as something that he would find useful. That he would, if he were on operating on white women and anesthesia was available, which it was at some point, he would absolutely use it because the notion was that they were, they do experience pain at um, higher levels than black women. So you would need it for them. Whereas with black women, it's not a conversation because the conception is that they don't need pain medicine. Right. Does that make sense? That's actually much more important that black women are opened up to the kind of experimentation they experience mm. with him because of medical ideologies and mm-hmm. racial yeah. ideologies of the time. Wait, Dr. Lewis, I have a question. So he, he wasn't even in his, didn't even cross his mind to give these women anesthesia. But then I'm wondering why did he even bother with the morphine? Cause he gave them morphine after. And I just, I'm confused about that. Yeah, you know, there are all kinds of inconsistencies happening because, mm. you know, you have to mm. remember this. At the same time as there were ideas that Black people were anatomically and physiologically different than white, right. they were using them for experiments that would benefit whites. So there's this inherent mm-hmm. contradiction between the notion that they're different, but that they're the same enough to be used on white women later. So the truth of the matter is these inconsistencies are Mm -hmm. inherent in American society, right? We both Mm -hmm. have the notion that we are the land of the free and the Declaration of Independence declared that, but at the same time, it was a slaveholding nation. And so we see the same kind of inconsistencies and contradictions in medicine. So they were both mm-hmm. using things and tools that they were using on everybody on on black people at the same time they held these racially biased conceptions. And it also to me I think points to the fact that there wasn't a notion of doing harm in the most strict sense if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was ironically a benevolent um undertone to what he thought he was doing for these women and so the notion that he would be like torturing them is less consistent with the fact that he saw himself as a doctor performing medical procedures so for him to not use um whatever was available to him on purpose as a way to try to torture is just not quite consistent with the the racial ideology and that's why it's a it's a little problematic to see him as a kind of villain in the strictest Mm. sense because in his time he was considered a doctor like other doctors and he used tools that other doctors use at the same time um the medical knowledge at the time was deeply racist right in ways that didn't require him to be quote-unquote evil Right. And just what he's known for kind of brings to light those racisms that were rooted 
in medicine. So yeah, like he's not the bad apple like we were talking about earlier. No, he's he's definitely not the bad. Yeah, he's apple. like a concept or a yeah a product of the time. Right. Some historians do argue that these women gave their full and honest consent and they like wanted this treatment. And though I don't doubt that that's not true, like I'm sure that they wanted this treatment because they were in so much pain. But I guess I'm just interested in hearing your opinions on consent and like whether they truly gave their consent. Just when you think of consent and these people who argue that consent was fully and openly given, how do you feel about that? Yeah. So. Yes, they probably were like, please fix these fistulas and I am leaking and I'm uncomfortable and I can't, I'm debilitated basically from normal life. In that way, you could see consent, but I just don't consider it actual consent because these women were enslaved and they were rented to Sims. It was out of their own control to be given basically to this doctor to be operated on. They had no control over that. And that would be part of the consent process. And my idea is that if you're going to a doctor and asking for an operation and asking for them to help you, then you are the one making all those decisions and saying, yes, I want this done. Yes, I want this to happen and going through all the steps of deciding for yourself and they had all the decisions kind of made for them up to the point of them being in pain and they were only in pain because of the decisions made for them originally so the arguments that they did give consent maybe in the moment they said yes please help me but also they had no control over how they even got to that point in their life they didn't really have like the agency to even really make that decision for themselves at the time Yes, Charlotte, you're absolutely right to point to issues mm-hmm. of agency, to point to issues of um, consent in the modern day sense, not really mm-hmm. being um, useful for understanding what happened with enslaved Black women. You know, the issue of consent, as you say, was contentious for enslaved Black women. Certainly, mm-hmm. as you say, they were in a lot of pain and they wanted relief, but their reproductive health was always under the specter and control of white plantation owners. As enslaved women, they did not have the power to give consent for their health treatments, and any sort of treatment they experienced was the result of conversations between men. That is, white slave owners and white male physicians. The conversation was Mm -hmm. primarily about restoring what the slave master considered as property. So, like Mm -hmm. you say, issues of agency, particularly Black women's agency, are really fraught at this time. That's such a good point to bring up about like the agency and then also how all of the decisions being made for these women were being discussed among groups of white men and how there's- They weren't even in the room. Right. They weren't even close to the room. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that was the case, they had no choice. And I feel like I remember one of the most basic things I learned in like my first women's studies class was that oppression is the lack of freedom of choice. And so these women had no ability to even make a choice for themselves. And therefore, Mm -hmm. consent isn't something that they could have willingly given. Absolutely. Jumping off from that point, I guess, Dr. Lewis, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how we can maintain or try to incorporate like an intersectional feminist perspective into every aspect of our lives rather than just picking and choosing or 
deciding that when we remember to look at something a certain way, we think about it differently. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if that even makes sense, but just- Oh, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. You're trying okay. to make sense of what all of this history means for today and what it means for you and your mm-hmm. personal lives. And we are at a moment in history where people are really asking questions of themselves and they're asking questions of Mm -hmm. society and they're thinking about ways that they can actually make a difference. And so I think Mm -hmm. this is a really right time for looking at the past to try to think about Mm -hmm. what we can do today and to make the, the future better. So I think one of the things we have to do, and this is something you did, Charlotte, in terms of looking at pain medicine thinking about the way in which the past finds a way of repeating itself and showing up in the present Mm -hmm. and I think we see this even in this COVID-19 pandemic we see similar issues around the use of vulnerable populations for the advancement of medicine particularly Mm -hmm. and primarily for the benefit of people with more access to resources privilege and power So Dr. Sims used what he learned from experimenting on Betsy, Lucy, and Anarka in the North. He opened a hospital. He went around the world, garnering respect and notoriety, sharing his knowledge, while women that he experimented on kind of went by the wayside. It's only until recently that we've now recognized these women and we've tried to revise that history. So today, even with the COVID-19 pandemic, we see similar ideas re-emerging. For example, two French doctors recently suggested that we use Africans to test out COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. So over a century later, we see the same kind of premise, that there are bodies that are disposable and populations that are exploitable. That kind of experimentation would create new crises, burdens, and vulnerabilities for populations and create new inequalities in society. So what can we do? So we have to understand that health and medicine doesn't exist in a vacuum, but that it too is subject to broader social realities. The field of medicine can be used to do harm, subjugate and marginalize. Ensuring that medicine does not do harm is an ongoing process that has to be revisited and strived for. We have to identify existing practices and perspectives that are harmful and create new structures that ensure social justice and promote health and well-being. So if we take away that one bad man did one set of bad things, then we missed the opportunity to change our future and we've doomed ourselves to repeat it. Sims' racial attitudes were of no consequence in and of themselves. They existed in a society and within systems of slavery and medical practice that made them possible. Wherever we work, play, worship, live, we're all a part of systems that reproduce justice or curtail it. So as doctors, you will be in spaces that either add value to human life or denigrates it. There's a saying in the faith community, grow where you're planted. You have to constantly ask questions of the culture, practices, and policies of your workspace. Whom do they benefit? How do they affirm human dignity and life for all the people under your care? People who occupy positions of privilege play an especially important role in this transformation. 
It won't happen mm-hmm. without allies. Black and brown people cannot and have not historically achieved a better world on their own. Throughout time and across the globe, white people have forged practices of segregation and marginalization, and they have ensured systems of power are maintained. We will need the beneficiaries of those systems to help dismantle them. That's the way that I think that you can think about yourself as a part of systems and yourself as agents. And that happens wherever you are, wherever you work, wherever spaces. It's going to take a lot of courage on the part of people who don't stand to gain in the ways that other people do. Does that make sense? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, what what do you do when it doesn't benefit you directly? That's a sort of test of your um, humanity. So I guess just asking, like, who am I missing? Why are they missing? And like, who am I benefiting? And who am I leaving out by not taking a moment? I think it's important to understand that practices, policies, systems are already in place. So what you have to do is ask questions of the procedures as they are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you don't have to do the burden of self-questioning if you do the the work of thinking about how processes are already shaping people's experiences. People tend to want to think about their own personal individual attitudes or ways of doing things, but I think you should take it off of your personal choices and think about what's actually possible for you or not Mm -hmm. as someone operating in the role of a doctor. And this really relates to the police brutality cases that are happening now is that Mm -hmm. it's not really about whether or not an officer does a good thing or a bad thing. It's about whether or not Mm -hmm. a bad thing is even a possibility for them. It's not about whether or not someone will use a harmful tactic or practice but the fact that that harmful practice or tactic even exists. And I think that also is, that's so poignant because it ties in like perfectly to what we were saying about Sims and how his existence and his choices were a product of the time. Like he didn't even think to give black women anesthesia because he didn't even consider that. And that's because the time and the systems motivated him to act in a certain way that's what's kind of tying me together with these with what Mm -hmm. we're talking about and with the experiments is that no doctor or no cop should even really have the option to take a black or brown life because that shouldn't even be something that exists in the system right Mm -hmm. it's that it's that individual people's attitudes shouldn't have a consequence on shaping people's lives the thing i was thinking like that whole time was just going into school and like being medical students like how important it is for us to question what we're learning and I think that's like a bigger topic just in society right now is that we learn so much in school but they don't talk about racism today's Juneteenth and like never brought up in all of my education personally and just people are starting to realize that you have to like question what you learn throughout school and I think that yeah. applies to medical school as well 
I know like I'm reading a book about sexism and medicine right now. And it's very like general book doesn't really get into minorities and everything. It's just a lot about the biology, but it even right now is like making me question like, wow, they taught this to doctors and female physicians are discriminating against other female patients because of what they learned in medical school and how it's ingrained in them as doctors. And I've just been reading this and thinking to myself, wow, I really need to question what I'm learning and think about like, is this all information they truly have and like speak to professors and do the research to learn like what more is being produced in the world. I think that applies to this as well. It's just like always questioning what we're learning as doctors and what we're ingraining into like who we're going to become as physicians because that's the only way we're going to like fight this. I think what you're saying is so important because the real power in racism, sexism, other isms is their ability Mm -hmm. to present themselves as normal. And part of the way that happens in education is for you to learn about things that seem normal and seem um, to be taken as given that really also mm-hmm. are informed by broader social politics. And so yep. the notion of questioning is the most important thing you can do. And, and I think you also have to always be in conversation with people mm-hmm. and um, with ideas that help reveal the world in a way that, sh- that shows just how put together things are. The fact that we celebrate mm-hmm. the 4th of July as a national holiday and not Juneteenth has mm-hmm. everything to do mm-hmm. with what our society has placed a premium on. Holidays exactly. are invented. They don't exist um, in a vacuum and they also aren't given And so I think Juneteenth is an example of a holiday that I hope one day will be a national paid holiday, will be recognized Mm -hmm. because of the monumental um, impact slavery has had on shaping American society Mm -hmm. and continues to have on American society. When the 4th of July um, was instated as a holiday, you still had for a hundred years, almost, people who were not free. Mm-hmm. I remember Dr. Lewis in your class. Um, we we read that Frederick Douglass like letter or poem, like "What to the Slave is the Fourth of July," and I still think about that. And how many people think about that? How many people think mm-hmm. about celebrating the Fourth of July? But how many people are aware that for almost a hundred years? Everybody was not free. So we think about the 4th of July without thinking about that inherent contradiction. That, I think, is all a product of what we've been taught and what we've been taught is normal. We've been taught that the 4th of July is all about freedom and independence without also having to wrestle with the inconsistency of slavery at the same time. I hope that we can one day learn to celebrate Juneteenth as a a place of real hope. That was a moment where things could have changed. We could have decided that we were going to have a society that really did represent those ideals, um, but we didn't. And there were there were practices and policies that were put into place to make it so that all these years later, we're still celebrating the 4th of July and barely know anything about Juneteenth. 
But I think we're at a different time. I think this is a moment where the fact that you know about Juneteenth, I don't think most white people ever heard of Juneteenth before now. Probably not, honestly. I think think we have to seize this moment. This is a time Mm -hmm. where it is okay to think about Juneteenth as a white person, as a young person, to think Mm -hmm. about our society and our history in different ways and to embrace a past that has been suppressed for a notion of normal that doesn't actually capture our complex and rich history. I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Lewis, um, for being on this episode. You have truly brought so much rich discussion that we hope that our listeners will consider because we are going to be thinking about it long after this episode is over. And hopefully we can take some of what we talked about into our lives and move forward from here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. That was so fun. I'm really glad that we had Dr. Lewis and that we were able to bring her into our conversation. Yeah, that was great. I loved how she brought like new perspectives and a greater understanding of the topic because as we've mentioned, we're not professionals, but she literally is a professional. So she knew her stuff and it was great to have someone like her be a part of this conversation. So if you, our listeners, also really enjoyed this conversation, then feel free to send us some feedback, um, but just let us know what you thought of the conversation if, and if you have anything you'd like to add. You can also subscribe on any of the podcasting apps and leave us a rating and review, which will help us gain more presence in the podcast community and be found through search results a lot easier. Yeah. And so if you want to send us feedback and you want to follow us on social media, we're at From Scrubs to Scrubs. That's our handle for everything. And yeah, you can check out our website as well for more information. We have our show notes there, our sources, and all of our feminist corner discussion questions so you can have conversations with your friends and family too. So lastly, as always, we wanted to give a shout out to the women who fought for us to be here where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. All right. Bye. See you next time.